and y'all can, I know the mood's all set in here, but if y'all want, y'all can like <laughs> get those lights popping too if y'all want, man. Um, but yeah, that's, that was pretty cool. This, uh, this video we just saw, um, that was from the ambassador. Uh, my name is Jared Cole. I am a pastor over at Cornerstone Church right now uh, on the pastoral ministry team there. do local missions as well, some community outreach, that sort of thing. Uh, but recently, in the last few months, we've actually, so myself and a couple other uh, ladies on staff, Persia, that's the voice you just heard up there, Persia Gambles, Tracy Spears, she's also on the staff with us. Um, we actually came together just to make this thing called The Ambassador. It was really birthed out of this passion and desire that we had, right? We are uh, on a staff of um, uh, mainly, it's a primarily white staff at Cornerstone Church, if you guys who know Cornerstone Church. And so we are three uh, minorities that are on that staff, um, two black women, myself, uh, a black man, and we make up basically all of the diversity on the staff. And so, um, man, this has been a passion and a burden on my heart and my soul, and I'll get into that a little bit as I uh, get into some of my story here. Uh, but the ambassador, man, it really came at an opportune time. Uh, something that we could have never, uh, something we could have never foreseen, right? We, um, I've been on staff at Cornerstone for about a year now, in some months, almost a year and a half. Uh, and, you know, it's been my desire, my goal from the jump to kind of, man, bring the gospel to the race conversation, you know? Bring the gospel to the race conversation. Uh, you guys probably don't know much about church history, but it, it's like, um, Racism, right? Race in general uh, has been an issue in the church since really the foundation of the country. And so for, for us to look at where we are now, for us to look at our churches now, for us to look at just, you know, in, in, in 2020, <laughs> where we are now, we're not unique to the race issues that we're facing, you know. Uh, but this has been something that I think is God-given to me, something that he's put on my heart and my soul to kind of uh, lead out on. And so that's what this was. It's a passion project. We're coming out. We uh, want to bring things like culture, race, justice, uh, and hold it under the authority of the scripture. And so that's exactly what we've done. Thank you guys for showing that. Um, but yeah, like I said, my name is Jared Cole. I am not from Iowa originally. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. So a few hours south of here. I grew up, born and raised down there uh, in a, uh, a two-parent household, two loving parents. Grew up in the church. Uh, I have one biological sister. Her name is Jasmine. And, uh, man, I played basketball my whole life growing up. I got saved at a young age. I was around 10, 11 years old when I got saved. I went to this, uh, this Baptist church in Kansas City, Kansas, Mount Washington Bible Baptist. I'll never forget. Uh, grew up in that church. I was young, and so, like, I didn't understand quite, like, man, what the whole gospel meant, who Jesus himself, you know, was and all he accomplished. But there was something that I did know. I knew that uh, I was sinful. Um, I knew I needed a savior, and I knew that Jesus Christ provided that. He was good. I was bad, right? And I needed him. And so I knew that. So I made that profession of faith. I made the choice to walk down the aisle and get baptized uh, back then at 19 years old. Now, I remember that life was forever changed. Um, growing up, getting disciple, all this kind of stuff, you know, and uh, basketball was picking up. And uh, this is part of my testimony now. So I get to to middle school, you know, and those of you who um, have made the profession of, of Christ, right, uh, it's easy to think that once you make that profession to be a Christian, 
that your life is going to get easier, right? You're no longer going to desire the things that you once desired and things are going to be uh, uh, an easy go. And you don't expect to run into challenges as you step forward, right? But little did I know I was going to run into some challenges, right? Uh, but I had grown up in the world. I had grown up in a house that taught the scripture, that lived underneath the authority of the scripture. But I was still a rebellious kid, right? Throughout middle school, throughout high school, uh, basketball kind of gave me this this leisure, this license to kind of live life however I wanted to live it. Uh, and so it was, you know, uh, drinking throughout high school, um, getting together with girls in high school, right? College, that sort of thing. Um, all the way up, not really all the way up, but freshman year in college, I had a huge turnaround. Um, my knee, so I got a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Iowa, blew my knee out, uh, wrecked everything. I was a high-profile athlete coming out of high school. I had a chance to go play pro. I actually went overseas to play, but NBA was on my radar. Uh, so freshman year slowed me down really good. God got my attention then, and so it was then where God started to actually um, lead me closer to himself, put people in my life that could actually disciple me in my life and my walk with Christ. And so I uh, met my now wife. Her name is Trisha. When I was a junior in college, she was coming in as a freshman. Amazing story. Don't got time to get into that now. <laughs> but long story short, we uh, go over to Europe. We go to Europe. I go play basketball over there. She ends up playing basketball with me as well. Uh, as a pro, we have two kids over there. And in 2017, I get done playing basketball. Uh, that was May 20th of 2017. And it wasn't until then. So we, we talk about this. Man, the, the song we, we just sang, right? Grave in the gardens, uh, you're the only one who can, all these, all these kind of things, right? It wasn't, it's, it's not, oftentimes in the Christian life, it's not until you actually lose something <laughs> that you truly care about until the scriptures, the words in this book, the thing that you put your faith in, the life you proclaim to live, the goodness in God that you uh, say he has actually comes to life for you. Right. And so, um, man, in, in 2017, like I had known the scriptures. I had known who my savior was. Right. But basketball, this thing that I love, I placed my identity and kind of uh, offered itself as a functional savior for me. And so in 2017, get done with basketball. Um, and it was like, man, uh, a rushing wind. Right. And it was both like this this feeling of, man. It was, a, it was a refreshing feeling, but then it was also like this kind of, okay, now who am I <laughs> type of feeling, right? And so it was, it was insane. And at that, and in, in those times, in those, in, those, uh, in those, I call them dark days, man, because you're, you're wandering, you're like, dude, where am I going? You're saying things like, what are you doing, God? <laughs> you know, where are you taking me? All these sorts of things and things that, you know, you guys might not experience now, but, uh, man, uh, you may experience in the future. Right, and so getting done with basketball. One thing that basketball actually uh, taught me, and actually my life growing up as well, is that, is to value diversity. And this is kind of what I want to talk about with you guys today. Um, growing up in Kansas City, I grew up in a it was a it was a, a mixed neighborhood, but but it wasn't a suburb, a humble suburb of North Kansas City, down in Kansas City. And so my high schools my high school was really diverse. My middle school wasn't that diverse. My elementary school wasn't that diverse. But I grew up in a black household, and so like we, uh, our main community was a black community. But then I found myself living in a primarily white, like every day to day, you know. 
And so I would go to elementary school, but I'd come home and on the weekends, we'd go to a predominantly black church. We'd go hang out in a predominantly black neighborhood with my aunts and uncles and all this kind of stuff. And so I was constantly trying to balance these two worlds, these two lives. And so I, I really uh, 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 identify with the kids that I speak to over in Ames and the kids that I see around basketball because this is, this is their lifestyle, you know. And so it's, it's really cool to be able to speak into their lives and talk to them about some of that. Um, some things that you guys are now going to get the insider look on, <laughs> right? Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, this, it's this duality of a life. But it's something that I learned not to shy away from. It's something that I've learned to actually give myself over to. And now that, man, God's put this idea of racial reconciliation on my heart, I can actually put the gospel to it. And it's actually it's something that uh, Jesus doesn't say, hey, just, you know, put the Imago Dei, the image of God, on people. You know, like he says in, in Genesis, man was created in the image of God, male and female both, right? And so we, we take this idea of the image of God, the Imago Dei, and we use it to say, now treat others the way you want to be treated, <laughs> you know? Um, but we don't really realize that God doesn't place the Imago Dei on people just for us to say, hey, you're dignified. God already knows that. God already knows you guys are dignified over here in Boone, Iowa. God already knows that the, the kids in Ames are already dignified. He already knows that the cyclones are dignified. He also knows the Hawkeyes are dignified, right? <laughs> but uh, it's not whether the Cyclones and the Hawkeyes are dignified. It's whether we can come together in community, right? The gospel is, is community-driven. It's not dignity-driven. It's not, hey, you have, you have worth. Of course you have worth. <laughs> You're made in the image of God. Right? But God doesn't give us the image of God for the image of God's sake. He gives us the image of God as a people of God to live with one another, to dwell with one another. Right? And so I don't know about Boone, Iowa. I don't know the demographic makeup, makeup here um, in Ames. The demographic makeup isn't very diverse. Uh, but at the same time, there's a black community in Ames. Right? There's a Sudanese community in Ames. There's uh, an Indian community in Ames, right? It, it's a, no, there's not a lot of representation, but it's a diverse place. There's a lot of people that make up that city. And I would probably say Boone's the same, but maybe not in representation, but they're, but, but they're, but they're still here. Um, and the way that demographics work in America is that uh, the diversity tends to come with the younger generations. And so you guys are probably in schools right now, and you're looking around, and you're probably seeing that the, you're starting to see some type, of, some, some type of transformation. And maybe there's more diversity coming up with you guys. Maybe you have younger brothers and sisters, and you're looking at their classes, and you're like, hey, there's more people of color here than there were when I was in elementary school, middle school, right? Um, us adults, we're doing the same thing. We're looking around and seeing the demographics change, right? And so by... Um, Here's some stats for you guys, may mean something, may, may not. 2045, 2050, uh, America right now is a majority white country. In 2045, 2050, so it's 2020 now, you're looking at 25 years from now, 30 years from now. Uh, you guys won't be that old. Um, I'll be pretty old. I'll be, <laughs> I'm starting to get gray hairs already. I'm starting to get gray hairs already. <laughs> I might have a full beard full of gray hairs by then. Um, but by then, America will no longer be a majority white country. 
okay? It'll be um, Hispanics. The Hispanic population will be um, the majority by then. And uh, African-Americans, they'll be coming up. Asians, the Asian population, they'll be coming up. Um, and man, I think that with the gospel that we've been preaching from the very beginning uh, has done us a disservice. Number one, because it's actually perpetuated this idea of racism that we're witnessing now. I mean, you guys are coming up in age. It's, it's 2020. Um, I'm looking around. Most of you have cell phones. Probably all of you have cell phones, right? How, how old is this bunch? How old is this bunch? Are, are we all high school? Okay. Freshmen and seniors. Okay. So, yeah, I would I'd say all of you have cell phones, <laughs> right? Uh, when I, was, when I was your guys' age, maybe <laughs> half of us had cell phones. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to go any further back than that. <laughs> they didn't even exist back then. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there we go. There we go. You might not be that much older than me. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but yeah, so this is, this is really unique to you guys, right? Um, a lot of people say, uh, we, there's always this question, why are we talking about race? Why? Um, it's, it's common knowledge that humans, people in general, it's our human nature to care about things that we're in proximity to, right? And so I mentioned in Boone, is, there's not much diversity here. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why care about it? Why have this conversation? Why have Josh invite me over here and, and talk to you guys about this? Um, <clears throat> and I think the gospel is central to that. Uh, I think it's, it's crucial to what Jesus wants from us. Um, if we look at just the gospel and its overarching theme altogether, there's two parts to the gospel that I think we have uh, not done well in articulating over the course of our history uh, with Christianity. Right? There's one part to the gospel where we say, hey, be reconciled to God. We call this vertical reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. There's a second part to saving faith as well, and this is be reconciled to one another. Okay? This is horizontal reconciliation. Think a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. It's the image of the cross, and you can't have a complete idea of, of your faith, of your salvation, without understanding that God, that Jesus Christ, his life, does, uh, his life death, and resurrection, um, his ascension, going up, sitting at the right hand of God, uh, means that we are made one with God and we are to be made one with one another. And so this idea of pursuing right relationship, rightness with one another, goodness with one another, Forgiveness with one another, unity with one another is not something that we tack on. It's not something that you grow up with your parents and they say, hey, treat everybody the way you want to be treated, the golden rule. And you just say, yeah, okay, mom, whatever. Look at those losers over there. <laughs> you know? It's, 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 it's not that. Okay? It's you, if you're new in Christ, your desire to be reconciled with your brother and your sister, and by that I mean not your biological brothers and sisters, but the people looking around you right here, these are your brothers and sisters. I am your brother in Christ. Your desire, and, and specifically, in particular, people who are not like you, who 
don't speak like you, um, who don't live in Boone, Iowa, uh, who may live in Boone, Iowa, but, but live culturally different than you. It's those people that Jesus is talking about. It's those people that the gospel talks about. Um, and so you guys, man, as 2020, high schoolers growing up in a time like this, uh, the proximity thing, the proximity piece, <clears throat> your phones give you immediate proximity, right? You could all pull out your phones right now and you could go to Instagram. You could go up, y'all probably don't go to Instagram. You can go to, or Instagram, okay, you go to Instagram. I was gonna say Twitter. Y'all don't go to Twitter, I know that. Anyway, Instagram. <laughs> you can go to Instagram. You can look up my name, Jerry Cole, and you could, you could follow me, okay? You can follow my wife, Trisha Cole. She posts way more than I do. And so you would, <laughs> you would be able to see who we are, the life that we live, Right, but not only that, you could actually befriend someone over in Europe. You can befriend someone in Germany, France, and follow their lives and see whatever they're looking at. You can befriend somebody over in China, right, days away. And you can be in their backyard. Okay, you could follow them on a trip if you wanted to. It's insane the proximity that you guys have, right, that we all have now. And so I think with that comes a stewardship, right? It's a gift and a curse. A lot of people say that knowledge is power. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard that phrase before, knowledge is power, but I like to say that knowledge is actually responsibility, <laughs> right? Once you know better, once you know more, you're now responsible for more, right? And so it's, I mean, you, we could talk about Christian ethics. You probably are interested in that, um, but, it's, but it's this idea you know, let's, let's talk about just real quickly so I can make a, make a connection here. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's talk about, like, uh, medicine, okay? So you have this idea of medicine. Back in the day, you know, you, you get old, and then, okay, it's going to sound pretty morbid, but you get old, and then you, you die, okay? You, you move on, if you place your life in Christ, and you go to heaven, right? Nowadays, it's like you get old, and, hey, let's put... Uh, Uncle Johnny on the respirator. Okay, let's put Uncle Johnny on the uh, the life support, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have any Uncle Johnnies, but it's 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 this idea. Like medicine isn't a bad thing, but now we're actually forced to make better Christian ethical decisions with that with that new knowledge, with that new technology. I think our cell phones and the proximity it gives us to people around the world is actually doing the same thing for us. Uh, in this regard and how to love one another uh, as we're here, okay? Um, so with that, I wanted to, I didn't have time to get to a printer today, so I have everything on my phone. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some terms, okay? I think defining terms is really important in this conversation on race, okay? Um, and so I think I want to give you guys some terms to kind of grasp onto. I should have I should have put these things on a on a, a slide or something and have them go up there. But I'll define them. I'll try to be as lively as I can to keep you guys awake. But uh, try to follow me with this because I think this is going to be really 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 important uh, for you guys. Okay. Um, so microaggression. Have you raise your hand if you heard of this term microaggression? Okay. So microaggressions. Uh, it's got to be known they're not, you know, solely about race. They can be about really almost, almost anything. 
But I think in our cultural moment right now, in this time that we're in, it's important to talk about microaggressions in terms of race. And so a microaggression, say you have, um, uh, there's stereotypes about many different cultures, about many different people who make up different races, okay? Um, for Asian people, there's a stereotype that Asians are good at math, right? So say you have an Asian friend in school and you go up to your Asian friend and you say, hey, you should do my math homework for me. You know, that's a stereotype that your Asian friend is both living with and trying to counteract while you're bringing that up to them in this conversation, right? Those are microaggressions. Um, for me personally, growing up in Kansas City, uh, you know, in my kind of mixed suburban area, uh, there were a lot of white friends, you know, that would see me as, you know, they would say things like, you know, uh, you're not, you're black, but you're not like black, black. <laughs> Right, and I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys have heard this before, you've or, or you've seen some of your friends say this before to some kids in your school, right? It, it's like this idea that um, how many of you guys, how many of you guys have black friends at school? Yeah, that's good. Um, how many of you guys uh, like hip hop music? Hip hop like uh, Drake, Kendrick Lamar. Da, 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 da. I don't know. I'm about to date myself. Jay-Z, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so rap, hip-hop, what do you consider that? Like pop music? Is that pop? That's rap? Okay. Where I come from, you put rap and hip-hop in the same category. Anyway. Oh, uh, <clears throat> uh, okay, okay, okay. I see what you did there. Look, he's getting me back now just for you. <laughs> Um, you would call those guys okay those are more yeah okay <laughs> like who ice cube ice cube is rap okay ice cube is rap snoop dogg is rap right Ugh. gritty dmx what huh <laughs> did he so he's back in the game, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is this is so this is this is good. This is good. This is good. Um, this is important, right? Because you guys know, you guys are you guys are in. You guys understand this. Um, you have friends in your own boom context who are black, but then you're also receiving these messages over and over again. Um, you think of Ice Cube. Well, I don't know if you guys know the old Ice Cube. Um, but like this, you're receiving messages on, on, on what you perceive black people to be, on what you perceive blackness is, and then you ascribe that to the black people in your own context, and then you're able to say these things like, hey, yeah, you're, you're black, you have black skin, you know, but, 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 but you're no Ice Cube, you're no Snoop Dogg, you're not black black, right? Um, Absolutely, absolutely. But there's these, there's these internalized things that we can kind of do, right? We can think these things. We can have these preconceived notions. We can say, hey, black people, they sag their pants. Black people, they wear their hair this way. Black people, they speak like this. Black people, they live here, you know? Not here where I'm at, but there, you know? 
And so we're ascribing these things to people who look differently than us, and then we're able to hold those stereotypes and say uh, negatively impactful things um, about them to them, right? And so we can do that for all kinds of, all kinds of things, right? Uh, black women. I know uh, uh, I was raised by a lot of black women when I was coming up, right? Black women don't like their hair to be touched, okay? <laughs> Walking up, please don't ask a black woman to touch your hair. <laughs> and don't just do it out of nowhere either, okay? Uh, those, those can be turned, uh, deemed as microaggressions as well, all right? Um, <clears throat> let's talk about, so this is probably one of the most charged terms, and I usually only talk about this term when I'm speaking to adults, but I think this pertains to us here as well. Um, as high school students, is this idea of white privilege, okay? Um, by definition, white privilege means having inherent advantages um, uh, possessed by a white person on the basis of their race in a society characterized by racial inequality and injustice. Okay, so when we think about privilege, just the word, let, let's divorce it from the word white for now. Let's take it away from that, okay, and say, when we think about privilege, we think in terms of, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing good. I have more than someone else. I'm wealthier than someone else. I'm, I don't know, better looking than someone else. Like, like there's so many different kind of privileges you can have. I'm taller than someone else, right? I play basketball better than most. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, a type of privilege. Right? And so when you look at them in those ways, you can say, man, well, privilege isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right? And so the same is true for white privilege. We have to decharge the word because it's not a slur. It's not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. And so it's, it's, it's not whether you have privilege or not. It's not whether you um, live in a white-dominated society unless you have white privilege, but it, it it's, it's, what, it's how you steward that privilege. It's what you do with that privilege, right? So for instance, <clears throat> um, I have this friend at Cornerstone Church, you know, he, we talk about race issues all the time, and, and, and he says, you know, and especially in a cultural moment, he says, I've never once had to worry about driving my car and getting pulled over in fear for my life. You know, he's never had to worry if he was gonna make it home, okay? And so you guys know, you guys all have cell phones and maybe you guys have watched the videos, maybe you have not watched the videos or maybe you've read some articles or whatever, whatever you guys do on your phones, um, but you've probably seen that stuff, right? And then your mind, like the indoctrination process, the kind of discipleship process that you're getting from looking at this media uh, is telling you things like, um, man, this, this is the black experience. <laughs> you know, this, this happens to black people. Um, and so my, my friend, when he says this, right, I actually have the opposite um, response. I say, man, that's the first thing I pray about <laughs> when I get pulled over. I'm like, yo, Lord, just let me just get home, you know. Uh, I got wife and kids to get to. Right, it's, it's, it's like that. I remember when I was in uh, Iowa City, University of Iowa, going to school there. I'm from Kansas City. I have uh, Missouri license plates on my car. I would get pulled over, like, super often, 
you know, and there was this older black gentleman that was there and, and we met and we, you know, did some mentorship and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I would ask him, I was, I was like, yo, do you, do you get pulled over a lot? <laughs> you know, I didn't have the words for like, you know, racial profiling back then. I wasn't really thinking about this in terms like this. And so he was like, you know what? Do you still have your license plates from, from Missouri, from Kansas City? And I said, yeah. And then so he helped me get my license plates changed, changed my license plate. Um, and I noticed I was getting pulled over way less, you know, hardly ever again. That was like sophomore year in college. I, I, I never got pulled over again in Iowa after I changed my license plates, right? But there's this common understood idea that people who move in from out of town, specifically people of color, mainly black people who, who move in from out of town, like they get racially profiled um, and they get pulled over at a higher rate. They get accused of crimes at a higher rate uh, even in a place like Iowa City, Iowa, even in a place like Ames, Iowa, even in a place like Des Moines, Iowa, right? Um, I'm not sure about here in, 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 in Boone, um, but that's, that's the way it is. And, you see, and so white, white privilege isn't necessarily wrong. It's not inherently bad, but it's like, man, I don't have to think about those kind of things. I don't have to think about walking into a store and getting them followed around making sure I don't steal something. You know, I don't have to think about going to class and accidentally falling asleep and the teacher thinking that, you know, I'm a troublemaker or I don't want to be here or I don't want to, you know, I'm doing those sorts of things. I'm trying to bridge that gap to you guys in your context, right? Even in, <clears throat> like, I'm thankful for, super thankful for Jess back there in the back coming over to Ames for the equity office. Even in Ames and the high schools, middle schools around there, Black and brown kids get suspended, get put into you know detention, or they um, they're considered to be you know um, put in special ed classes at a higher rate than the white kids are in those in those schools. You know, and it's not for it's not because they're not as smart, it's not because they they can't do the work, um, it's not because they're actually acting out in, in worse behavior, but it's easier to, and no fault of anybody really, but it's just this inherent thing that's being built into us day by day by our natural experiences in America um, that teach us that, uh, that form our mind, shape our mind, shape our experiences in a way to say, uh, to look at things a certain way, um, to racially profile, okay? Um, so another term, another supercharged term, this term of white supremacy, okay, so white supremacy. When we think of white supremacy, I don't know, you guys, history courses, if they teach you guys about um, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, right? And so you guys know that the term white supremacy can be attached to an organization like that, that's easy, right? Or you, or you look at someone and say, um, man, you're, you're actually violent against people of color, uh, you, discriminate explicitly, it's just out front, it's blatant against people of color, you know. You can say anything you can see, anything that's blatant, explicit, you can put a name to it and say, hey, that's white supremacy, right? But I wanna help you guys kinda see something different about what white supremacy is so that way we can apply it on a much broader scale, okay? Um, I have three daughters now, my oldest is five, my middle child is three, my youngest is one, 
Um, they love going to Target. They love going to Walmart. You know where the first place they go when they get to Target or Walmart? To the toys, right? And where specifically in the toys? To the Barbies and the doll babies, right? And so we go in this section, and they're, and they're looking around and looking around and looking around, right? And they start to notice something different, you know, um, at five and three. They're looking around for the dolls, and, and they turn around and look at mommy and daddy. They look at mommy. My wife, I'm married to a white woman. She looks at daddy. <laughs> look at mommy. Look at daddy. They're like, I see a lot of mommies, you know, on the wall. You know, and they're looking at themselves. They're a darker shade of skin. They're not quite as dark as me, but they're darker than their mother. And they're like, you know, you can just see it just turning, the gears turning. Like, man, where, where are the dolls that look like me? You know, and so they're learning something in this moment, and it's something that, you know, the majority white culture doesn't have to necessarily deal with, but it's something my girls deal with on a day-to-day basis, whether it's representation in the movies, in their favorite TV shows, um, when they go into the store, when they go into their school, when they're playing in their neighborhood. My daughter, she's five. She went to preschool for the first time uh, this past year. Um, and so it, it's her first time with a buku amount of kids, <laughs> you know, and she's just noticing, she's coming home and she's realizing these things and she's saying these things and she's quiet some days, you know, and we're trying to have these conversations. We're saying, hey, babe, how, how'd you, how was your day? And how are things going? You know, and it's that early where she may not hear a racial slur. She wouldn't even know what a racial slur was if she heard one. You know, but she's picking up on things. She's internalizing things. She's uh, becoming aware of things, and she's and she's recognizing that man, this is a place that's not really like me, not really for me. You know, and so this is this is kind of this idea of what white supremacy looks like. I have this friend, Persia, the, 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 the girl you heard on the, on the video talking about the Ambassador podcast. <clears throat> she loves doing her hair. She loves cosmetics. She loves going to the store, right? And she's, she tells us all the time, and she, she goes into the store, and she's like, man, you wouldn't believe I found my shade of makeup today. <laughs> you know? It was, it was like, uh, like she found a golden nugget, Right? She found, that she found the needle in the haystack. Um, there's a world that we live in in America that's specifically and intentionally made for a certain demographic. And by demographic, I mean for a certain group of people. Um, and it's not mainly for people of color. Uh, and it was like that by design. Right? And so when I say this concept of white supremacy, I'm not talking about the people on the far ends of this spectrum, right? of people who you can identify and say, hey, oh, that's KKK, that's white supremacy. You know, but it, it's these things in our culture that, uh, that continuously remind us and teach us and tell us and disciple us in this, uh, in this thing, I can say, called whiteness, right? And this thing called whiteness. All right, I got two more terms. 
and then I want to, I hope we're going to have time for questions. We're going to have time for questions? Okay. Uh, so this idea of cancel, cancel culture, okay? Being on social media, what's that? YouTube? You got, okay, I, I, I knew you were going to know. All right, it's new to me, but I knew y'all were going to know about this. All right, so cancel, cancel culture. <clears throat> uh, matter of fact, it's actually making its way more towards the adult side of society more and more. Uh, but this idea of cancel culture is, uh, man, it's like this idea if you say something stupid, if you say something ignorant or overtly offensive, it's super offensive. And even if this thing happened like 10 years ago, you know, and then it comes up, re-comes up in the media, comes up on Twitter, something like that. Someone can dig it up when you're famous, and then the public outcry results in a boycotting event, right, that leads to the decline of a career or influence. This is kind of how it looks uh, in the adult world. In uh, the high school world, it kind of looks like, um, you know, maybe someone who was popular ends up saying something that's not so popular. And then so what do you say? You say, man, you're, you're canceled. You know, you kind of just, uh, you're done with that person. You know, they weren't who you thought they were, whatever it was, and um, you know, you're just saying, blah, okay, whatever, you're canceled. Um, Kanye West was canceled for a while. You guys know Kanye. Uh, what's that? He's running for <laughs> Kanye 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, you guys can vote for him if you want to. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, so you're going to be 18. Yeah, I turned 18 in November. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> Is that right? Wow. Okay, okay. Cousins, cool. Awesome. Draw those, draw those lines for me, Josh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this, this idea of cancel culture. Um, one way, so, so there's a good and a bad of cancel culture, right? Because it can be super premature and it can actually be used as a, as a tool, especially for us as Christians, to not be loving towards people, to not be forgiving, to not operate in a sense of humility and kindness, right? And unity, it kind of hinders that bridge. But there's <clears throat> a good thing that it can do, um, and especially in terms of our race conversation, our cultural moment, there was a recent time where cancel culture did its thing and it was a positive thing. Um, this woman by the name of Amy Cooper, uh, do you guys know this name? You guys know about this story? It was in the news and um, I saw it on Twitter because I'm old and that's what I use. And okay, great. Twitter is, Twitter is my, my jam. Twitter is my jam. If, okay, so you're on TikTok, you're on MySpace? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, you still use Facebook. As long as you're still on Facebook, we're all good. I'm not that old. All right. Um, but yeah, so there's this story of Amy Cooper, right? Those of you guys who don't know Amy Cooper, <clears throat> it was this case that was in New York City, Central Park. Uh, this uh, young black man, he was in this park and he was bird watching. And Amy Cooper, this young white lady, um, she was also in Central Park and she had her dog and uh, an altercation broke out 
and apparently she felt like, um, you can see the video, that, that she was being threatened, and she clearly wasn't being threatened. Um, and so she actually walks over to the man who's now recording this interaction. And <clears throat> I think this is, I'm so, the, the video's atrocious, but I'm so grateful it came out, and I'm especially grateful it came out whenever it did because it happened right before the George Floyd thing. Um, and so it actually gives us a full picture. You look at what happened with um, Amy Cooper, and then you look at what happened with George Floyd, and you can actually draw a succinct picture, a, a complete picture across these two events playing out, and you actually get a story that could very well have been a true story, right? So what, so what Amy Cooper does in this moment, a, a thing that she says, she weaponizes her number one, whiteness, and she weaponizes her number two, femaleness, right? And she uses these two things to call the police using her white privilege and says, um, you know what I'm going to do. She tells the guy this, I'm going to call the cops and I'm going to tell them that there's a big black man or an African-American man threatening me, right? And so she's using the internalization of what she's gathering from, right? Who knows if she lives in a minority, you know, uh, neighborhood or not, or a mixed neighborhood or not. She probably doesn't. Um, but even th even th even though she's getting this uh, this education, this indoctrination, this discipleship of some sorts from the from the uh, from the society, that's telling her something about people of color and that's telling her something about herself. <clears throat> and she's saying, based on her actions, I can weaponize myself as a white person in particular. I can call the cops knowing that when they arrive, they're gonna be on my side. Um, and I can put your life at stake right here, right now, okay? And so, cancel culture. What cancel culture does is they say, hey, we're going to identify this woman, Amy Cooper. Um, we're going to blow everything up. We're going to find out where she works. We're going to get her fired. And that very thing did happen. And so you're, you're grateful for cancel culture in that, in that moment, right? Um, and the Amy, Amy Cooper story, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal story because it's telling of our story of America, I think. And, and it helps us in one video, in one shot, just tell us exactly who we are and, and, and the message we're trying to send as a nation, okay? Um, the last term that I'm gonna give you guys, and if you guys have heard any terms or if you're not clear on some things, please ask me in our little uh, question and answer uh, session, but I think this will be the last one I'll give you just for my notes. Um, this idea of systemic racism. Systemic racism. We we know what racism is, right? We uh, actually we may, probably don't know what racism is. There's there's been a lot of debate on how to define racism nowadays, right? And so you can you can look at racism in its traditional form and say that racism is uh, discrimination or prejudice or hate, right, against anyone of a different uh, race, right? So that means. White people can be racist, black people can be racist. Um, but now there's this, what's that? Anybody, anyone can be racist. But now there's this uh, 
new, I don't want to say it's a new idea, but it's a definition that's grown in traction, okay? And there's that, the basic definition of racism, plus now this component of power, okay? So it's like discrimination, there's prejudice, but then now there's this component, this element of power that gets put in there that kind of complicates things now, right? Because now you get to the, to the conversation of like, okay, power sounds kind of like privilege, all right, who has privilege, white privilege, okay, power, based on the privilege in America, who has the power, right? You're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and so with this definition, you can say that people of color can't be racist because they don't have the perceived power in the country, right, in our, in our society. But white people do. And so if you look at that definition and you look at what I just told you guys about Amy Cooper, you can see how that can be the case. Amy, Amy Cooper didn't have, like when we think of the word power, she didn't have power in, the, in, in terms that we think about it, right, in terms of being strong, in terms of having leverage, in terms of having influence, in terms of being uh, popular or, or um, a celebrity of some sort or any authority in government, right? She wasn't the president of the United States. So when we think of power, we tend to think in terms of, of that. But I think this new, that's right. So with this new definition of racism, it's like, so when, I, so when my friend says, hey, I've never had to worry about being pulled over by a cop and fearing for my life ever, right? And I'm like, yo, that's the first thing I pray about. You know, I'm probably not gonna get killed by the cop, but I, I, I worry about that, right? My friend never has to do that, right? And so like, that's, that's this idea of, uh, this power component that comes into play. And so structural racism, <clears throat> when we think about um, this idea of structural racism, it's, it's really hard to understand. It's even harder to define, right? But I think it's, it's helpful to think about it in terms of history, okay? So in terms of history, when we look back on history and we see the beginning of uh, slavery in America. Uh, slavery, 1619, roughly, even a little bit further than, back than that, some data back to the 1500s, the mid, late 1500s. Uh, but 1619 is the date that we all get in our history books, okay? Um, slavery, the race-based slavery that happened in America was race-based slavery that was built on this social construct of race, okay? And by a social construct, I mean like me being called a black man, you being called a white man, white kid, right? You being called a white girl. Like this, this wasn't something that <clears throat> the world in like, you know, 1619 was, was talking about. There was no way to describe people based off of skin color. You were, you were described based on your culture and ethnicity, right? And so once you get people together in this, in, this, in this newfound thing where it's actually a melting pot, a mixture of peoples, there's someone that you have to keep control and power and order and whatnot, right? And so now in America where there's a mixture of people where you're not just in France, where there's French people, you're not just in Germany, where there's German people, you're not just in Africa, where there's African people, but there's this, uh, there's now this new people, this, this opening of borders in America to create this new society. And then in order to, to, to 
create a hierarchy of power, an order of power, in order to create order in and of itself, it had to be okay. Certain people are good and certain people are bad. As a matter of fact, the bad people, people that look like me, were even considered to be human, all right? And so you look at this, uh, this structure that was built in America, and you look at the structures that it infiltrated, the structure of race and the hierarchy of race, white, good, black, bad, and you look at the structures that it infiltrated, racism or, 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 or slavery, right? And so now you have this thing that slavery, that you can look in your Bibles, you can read stuff about slavery right now, but the something with the Atlantic slave trade, the historical slavery that we know about, the race-based chattel slavery, it becomes something altogether uh, otherworldly than anyone in scriptural times could have, could have thought about. Um, it was probably more so actually, uh, it's equatable to the slavery in Exodus, if you guys know that story, the story of Moses, right? The Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. Um, the Egyptians uh, were there, you know, and, and, and they had generation after generation. And all the Israelites, you couldn't be born an Israelite and be born free. You were born into slavery. That was a new type of slavery. No one had seen that kind of slavery back then, right? And even in the New Testament, you get to slavery, and it's not even that kind of slavery. Um, but in America, you go back to this Exodus-type slavery, and it's ethnic-based. It's race-based, just like the Israelite slavery, right? And what did God do with the Israelites in, 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 in Egypt? That's right. Okay, uh, there's, that's right, that's good, that correlation. And so you, you, can't, you can't look at that in any way, form, or fashion and say that it's God-ordained or say that this is how it was supposed to be. But there had been people all throughout our history that had used the scriptures, used the Bible, uh, used the word of God to say, actually, no, yeah, this, this type of slavery is good. You know, the, the black person actually meant to be in servitude, you know, uh, not just in servitude to, to gain their freedom or to pay off the debt, but in servitude, like, for life. Like, that's who they are by nature. That's who they are by their DNA. Um, and so this, this, this institution, this, this structure that's created. Um, so in 1865, fast forward, what, 250 years later from 1619, and slavery gets abolished. And so you're thinking, man, this, this is great. Now everything's going to be good. <laughs> right? But it's not good. 1865, you get the 13th Amendment, okay? The 13th Amendment in the Constitution says that slavery is abolished. You can no longer uh, hold slaves. Um, it's illegal now. But then there's this loophole. You guys know what a loophole is in this 13th Amendment? There's like, it's like saying, uh, <laughs> it's like saying, your parents saying, um, we're no longer giving you guys any ice cream anymore. Unless you do your chores really good, then you can have ice cream, <laughs> right? And so it's, 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 it's kind of like that, right? With the 13th Amendment, it was like that in a negative way. It's like we can no longer have slaves anymore unless punishable by a crime. So if you uh, commit a crime, if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, if you're not obeying by the law and you go to jail, now we can use you again for free labor and put you back into the slavery system. And so, um, um, 
So when we look at, when we look at that 1865, we had an opportunity to actually right wrongs. <coughs> we had an opportunity for true reconciliation, true relationship, true right relationship amongst people in America. Um, but we didn't do that, right, because of this, because of this, this system. So now it got put into um, our legislation, our laws, our law. Is, is structured in a type of way and it benefits a certain type of people. Um, now we look at it and it kind of benefits more people with money now than in particular people with a certain type of skin color. But the economics, the wealth in our country, the money in our country is actually, um, it's really indistinguishable. It's not quite indistinguishable, but you can make this argument and, and it could stand up if you look at really any, uh, anywhere in our country. Um, that people of color are disproportionately um, uh, lower income than the majority culture, right? And so given that, like the, the, the disproportionality in home ownership, the disproportionality in education, the disproportionality in incarceration rates, the disproportionality in, um, in, in, in wealth in and of itself, uh, like, like these things fall on the, on, the, on the hands of the people of color in a, in a negative way because of how we view race uh, structurally, institutionally, okay? And you can see it kind of in our, in, our, in our government as well or in any institution. The higher you look up, like if you could look up at a glass ceiling and you could see everybody in a particular institution and you look up, the higher up you go, the less people like me you see. Right? And you can see that in nearly every single institution um, that we have in America. Right? Uh, not so much because there's people who look like me and can't get there, uh, but it's more difficult uh, based on the institutional and structural racism that we have here in America. Okay? So I think that's good as far as um, terms. There may be a term you're thinking about that I didn't hit, and I would love to talk about that too. Um, or any questions you guys may have. Uh, let me pray for us real quick, and then we can do questions, and that can kind of be the end if you want to do that. Okay. Uh, Father, we love you, and we are so grateful for your son, Jesus, and uh, the work that he did to uh, purchase us on the cross. And Lord, I look up and I see um, these young men and women in here who want nothing more than to love you and to know you and glorify your name. And Lord, I pray that uh, you put it in their hearts now. I pray that you uh, work it in their hearts in the future, Lord. I pray that if they once heard you call their name loudly and audibly in their young years and they find themselves now in a place where they haven't heard it in a while, Lord, I pray that you do it again. You did it for me, and I'm so grateful. Lord, I pray for their hearts and their minds as they navigate this cultural moment. I pray for um, their friends. I pray for uh, their parents, Lord, as they're trying to navigate this time as well and, um, man, find ways to, to 
use this moment to use the gospel, to use the scriptures, to use your holy word to enter into this moment and give it true breath, to give it true justice. Lord, we know that race and racism and uh, white supremacy and uh, all the all the ills of this country, they're not um, they're not add-ons to the gospel. They are not outside of the reach of the gospel. There have been lies told for centuries and centuries that this is the case, Lord, and I want to be a voice that gets to break this chain, that, get, that gets to speak to a generation of upcoming Jesus followers, of Bible believers that are not afraid to challenge the authorities that may be with the only authority that matters. Your word, God. We know you have something to say about it. Um, it's all right here. Lord, help us not use the word political to push things aside and say we don't talk about those things in the church. We don't talk about those things in the home. Lord, make it so that uh, your glory shines through us and we do justice. We, we, we give onus to you, Lord, as the one true Savior. We don't look to the things to this world to pacify us or to hold on to uh, or to use as barriers. That way we deflect what's true and what's worthy of pursuit, really. Um, things like justice, things like mercy, things like humility, things like boldness, things like unity, things like uh, forgiveness, Lord. Give us the ability to pursue those things. Give us the heart to want those things. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Can we get you have a mic to pass around here? Are you okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stand so they can hear you in the back. <laughs>
Michael Jordan shoes would not have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We might not have had peanut butter. <laughs> we might not have had peanut butter. Wouldn't have traffic lights, air conditioning, lights in general. They say Thomas Edison was the first one to do lights and whatnot. Not true. Um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, that's, that's a good point. So many, so many things. Okay, let me make sure I got your question correct. What do I think would have happened had um, Africans not come over here to be slaves on American soil? Um, <clears throat> man, that is a phenomenal question. I think I've never, I've probably never thought about the question in that way before. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a couple ways I can think about this. Um, I can think about it this way. In Africa, uh, I think this goes, this gives credence to kind of our understanding of the world <clears throat> and how we tend to view the world. And then um, I remember, um, so I'm doing uh, seminary right now. I'm taking a course. We were down in Iowa City. Uh, we had this class and this lady comes over from some like, local missions organization in Iowa City. And she brings with her this video. And this video is kind of like a music video of this super conservative church uh, that made this music video about missions to Africa. <laughs> and you can tell like she just, it was me and only a couple other chocolate chips in the room, you know? And she was, and she was saying, <laughs> and she was saying how like, uh, she puts the video on, and the video's like, please don't send us to Africa. Da, 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 da. Please don't send me to Africa. And it has this guy, this, this middle-aged white man. He's in Africa. He's in the jungle. He's, like, freaking out. He's afraid of the wildlife there, and he's kind of dressed in what he thinks to be African garb, and it's, like, nothing at all, right? And it's all this kind of stuff. And so it gives you this perception of... It gives you this perception of Africa, right? And so I think we tend to, we can fall into that camp and have this perceived thought of what Africa is. Um, but if you've never been to Africa, right, there's, there's certain parts of Africa, there, there's a lot of parts of Africa, and even in the parts of Africa that are undeveloped, that's still super tribal. Um, there's still a sense of order there, you know? Um, I think we can tend to think of things as being unorderly or chaotic or uncivilized. Uh, 
because of how we tend to perceive civilization, like America and, and, and the way we've developed and gone over time. And so we can hold this up to be the standard of how things are to be and how things should operate. And we can look at something like Africa and say, uh, man, they're not doing it like this, and so they're not civilized or whatever. And so I can answer the question and say that, man, it, it would, um, there's a way I can look at it and say we'd be none the wiser, but then I can also look at it and say uh, there could be thriving metropolises, <laughs> you know, thriving Wakanda. communities. There could be Wakanda if you want. Yeah, yeah, I love Black Panther. Michael B. Jordan, that's my guy. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be shoes. Wouldn't be my J's, man. So, yeah. I also got some Jordan 4's I really like, so. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? You know what? There were there were no microaggressions in France. Um, yeah, I, I think so. France, as a as a country, in their own history, uh, their kind of discrimination and prejudicial history kind of goes from, you know, French natives to uh, like inhabitants of the, of, the, of the Middle East, you know. And so I had different, uh, you know, I had Algerians on my team that I would play with, you know, and there would be a lot of tension and a lot of, you know, hatred kind of amongst them, the, the, the uh, native Frenchmen and then now these Middle Eastern men. And so the Middle East community in French cities they operated kind of like how black communities operate in America, right? They're kind of enclaved off and they kind of do their own thing, the barbershops, the, you know, all this, all, this, all this kind of stuff. And so when I wanted to get my hair cut, I had to go hook up with my guy Faisal, you know, and say, hey man, where can I get my hair cut? You know, like similar when I come to Ames, I gotta go see my man Joe the Barber, right, in, 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 in Ames, down in uh, Campus Town. And so it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. And so. Me as a black American, an African American, <clears throat> I didn't really experience this kind of, you know, standoffish type deal. And, and it, it, it might have been helpful that I was an athlete. I was a, a pro athlete in France, right? So even in these small cities that I was in. Um, and by the way, I was never in like the Parises or the, I was actually in Strasbourg one year, which was amazing. But I was more or less like in uh, the Boons and the Ames <laughs> of, uh, of France, you know, no knock on Boone and Ames, man, but it's just like I wasn't in the New York City of France, you know, I was, I was in like, you know, these, these small towns like this, uh, and so it was, uh, you know, you, maybe the athlete thing, the, you know, popularity kind of shielded me from that, and it even, honestly, it, it kind of shields you from it here in America, you know, as, as long as you Man, you guys have probably heard, seen this in the news too, and this what and whatnot. If you watch basketball and uh, like the call or, or football too, the Colin Kaepernick thing, the LeBron James thing, right? LeBron James shut up and dribble, Colin Kaepernick, you know, don't kneel for the flag, you know. As 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 long as you're an athlete, 
black or white, whatever, pretty much black, like as long as you just do your job and you don't say anything and you don't you know, speak against the injustices, you don't talk about your experiences, you experience a microaggression, you don't talk about that, you shut up and you, you, know, you, you play your sport. Um, so there, there's a sense of being able to navigate around these kind of racial tensions, right? But there comes to a, a, a point which LeBron, like he's, I commend LeBron so much in speaking out and doing the things that he does, right? And I'm a huge LeBron fan anyway, so that's that, that's that okay? Uh, but Colin Kaepernick, the same way, you know? Um, man, using their voices in a environment, in an atmosphere, in a time, in a place where <clears throat> if they didn't, they could sail off in the sunset with millions and never be hated ever a day in their life, <laughs> you know? Uh, and they choose to be vocal, they choose to be active, activists, you know? Uh, they refuse to be silent, that's great. Uh, and so, I mean, if you're an athlete, you can, you can find some ways around that. And, and so you see not many athletes say anything. And it's not for not having the experiences, it's simply they're trying to keep their jobs um, and just frankly trying to, trying to lay low, you know? Um, if you don't make any noise, you don't draw any attention. baby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's good. I think it's not different in basketball culture, no. Um, man, I don't, I didn't experience it with McCaffrey um, or Licklider for that matter. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's a, there's a fine line you have to draw, I think. I think a lot of the things that the football athletes are saying, they're coming out and saying, they're talking about issues that, uh, that like speak to their their body, their expression of themselves, you know? And so when, whenever you have a coach, when you have an organization, uh, I was talking to the, uh, one of the people that represent sports at Iowa State, and we were having this conversation. <clears throat> and he asked me this pointed question about like, okay, so what like can, what can AD say, athletic directors say? Like what, like what, can, what can they do, what can they not do, or shouldn't do? And I'm like, so here's, here's what I tell Tony. I said, anything that, um, is part of the athlete's body. You have no jurisdiction over how they wear their hair, the tattoos they get, um, the jewelry they wear, right, earrings, gold teeth, whatever. If, if they wanna do that, they wanna spend that money, they wanna wear those things, they wanna get those things, that's good. But you're hearing stuff from these athletes who are saying that like, man, I'm walking around 
the locker room and, and coaches telling them, you know, you can't wear your hair that way. You got to take those braids down, you know. Or if you have your hair half braided, half not braided, you know, get a haircut, you know, or braid it at all, you know, one thing or another. And so there are these, like, those are microaggressions as well, right? Those are, th those are things that are getting under the skin of these, of these athletes. Um, and they're, they're, they're trying to enforce a standard, you know, uh, that, that really goes against someone in their own personal expression of who they are. And so I, I'm saying this is, this is uh, really popular amongst college athletics to have this persona of a cleanliness, you know, tidiness, under controlledness. You know, it's like being away from college sports and then looking back on it, like it's super eerie. You know, I'm like, dog, I really came through that, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you're, because you're, you're looking back on it, you're seeing the experiences, you're looking at it, you're like, yo, this is just so uniform. There's like literally, they really do zap all the, you know, the, 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 the uniqueness you bring. And it's insane, you know? And so like I'm, I'm, I'm able now, years later, to look back on it and, and say these things, but I could have never identified that in the midst of it, right? Because you're, you're, you're so focused. And so these kids, they're not really doing it either until later down the road, you know, it's, it's 2020 now. These kids were in school when I was in school. Um, I was a freshman at University of Iowa in 2007, graduated in 2011, you know, so it's, it's taken nine, 10 years, you know, for this to kind of set in and be like, man, this is the experience that I had, you know? Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, so I say, listen, if it's part of personal expression, unique expression, things on their body, you have zero as, you know, a program. You have zero jurisdiction over that. They can literally do whatever they want. And you've got to give that freedom, you know. Um, the things you do have control over are your equipment, <laughs> you know, the uniform. So if you're going to say, hey, uh, nobody's cutting off their shirts. You know, football players like to cut off the, you know, little crop top type joints. Uh, and I'm like, yo, y'all do whatever y'all want to do, but that ain't, that ain't for me, right? Um, so if you're going to say, hey, you can't wear your shirt like that, that's actually fine, okay? It kind of does kind of tear down on that, on that kind of expression type, type, type stuff, but that's something that you have jurisdiction over. You can actually do that, right? If you want to say, hey, you can't wear a neck roll, you know, okay, you can't wear, wear neck rolls. Um, colored visors, you know, okay, fine, you can't wear colored visors. Um, it's, it's a way to... To, to kind of keep the control that the department wants, but then it's also a way to, to, to let an athlete still kind of flourish in and of themselves. So now, once you make these rules with uniform rules or whatever, an athlete, maybe Iowa State doesn't have the same rules Ohio State has. Maybe Ohio State doesn't have the same rules uh, Michigan State has. Maybe Michigan State has the same rules Alabama has. And so now you as an athlete know what you're getting yourself into, knowing you can still go and be who you are as an individual person, but then you're just, confined to these uniform rules. Um, I think that's the best way to go about it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Jess, are you, um, I'll ask you a question. Are you going to be in one of the schools, the high school, middle school, or are you going to be in the actual like equity school. office? I work directly with Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones. And I work together and um, yeah. do critical competency training for the AMC. Okay. So 
That's awesome. That's awesome. You're going to love it. I already know. <laughs> I already know. So every, he was like the, I think he was the principal of the middle school at one time. And so that was some years back and I was playing overseas and I'd come back. So I actually wanted to go into higher education when I got back from playing overseas, got my master's in psychology while I was playing. And so I wanted to do my master's. You're, you're going to love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Are you going to, okay. All right. So you're a Hawkeye through and through. <laughs> Um, that's right. There's a few of us right here. That's right. That's right. Uh, not right now. I don't know if that's true or not. Okay. 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 So I'll say, listen, I'll meet you halfway and I'll say Iowa State had better basketball. Okay, I'll meet you halfway and say, like, yo, when George Yang was here, Monte Morris, um, I'm drawing a blank on the other one, Naz Long, you know, yes, domination, but no, no longer, the ties have changed, football and basketball, got a lot, black and gold, okay, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, uh, Man, where's the thought even going? Dr. Jones, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, one of the going to higher education when I got back. And so um, every time I came home in the summertime, I'd be here for like two months of the year. I was gone overseas for 10 months. And then come back two months and hang out, hang out with family, see family. But I would also meet with different people in the education system, higher education. So he was one of the guys I was introduced to. Um, knew him through that, knew him through church involvement, that kind of stuff. Um, prayer meetings and aims, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, great, great dude. His son played for this program I coached for in Ames. And so, yeah, good dude. Uh, there is no, there is no dumb question. Yeah, that's good. And that's as good. A parent of young kids, I'm sorry, I'm telling you this. It breaks my heart yeah. when people are just as a parent of young kids, I 
stuff like that, but I also was concerned about different people in the audience. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity actually to go to Ethiopia as a professional vendor. Wow. Um, and I'm not even going to pretend that I guarantee. I ha- I, they did not swear that I was wearing a suit on stage. They made Oh, wow. They did not like huh. We were at an orphanage, so <coughs> the kids were like, they loved yeah. our yeah. skin color and our hair. I mean, I <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I'll answer that question, and I want to say this too: that like, I, mean, I I love the fact that you're going serving overseas. I, I love that. Um, but I also think, in terms of, this is why I think history is so important in these conversations, is because it's not so much a like white black skin issue in and of itself. It's the baggage that comes with the historical narrative of racism, you know, that kind of lends to this tension uh, that doesn't ever seem to get fixed, right? We're in 2020 and we're still having this conversation. Uh, and so, man, it's, it's more than getting acquainted with other people of color. You know, it's 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 educational, it's, 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 all this, it's all this different kind of stuff, right? And so I would say as far as your kids are concerned, diversify, how old are your kids? <laughs> so I have 11, okay, so they're still, they're still really young. So like you can, um, particularly, yeah, the, the like, I guess the nine and six-year-old in particular. Uh, diversify the books that they read. Diversify movie options. Diverse, like, uh, man. Like, you yeah, yeah. Yep. I think I think that's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the the next step would even be as far as intentionally doing that, you know, in, insisting on, <laughs> you know, um, so that way it's not done just out of personal preference, but it's done with an intentionality to. Uh, you know, because it does two things. It, it helps reinforce for your kids, but then also helps reinforce for your own self as well, right? Because Lord knows, like, we have a hard time, you know, sticking with one narrative watching the news, you know? And so it's easy to be like, okay, the George Floyd thing's happened, and now I feel passionate about this sort of thing. Um, you know, 2021 comes, and, and now I'm, you know, back in this other camp or I'm not thinking about it anymore. Uh, and so, so the hope is, and I think I said this in my message kind of on, on Sundays, that like, man, the hope is when 2025 20, comes, when 2030 comes, when 2035 comes, uh, we don't 
we don't have this conversation in a way where we're having to go from here's these here's these like these two or these these this biblical spectrum like to go and it's like this uh, area of ignorance to awareness to intentionality to gospel community, right? Um, in some places, and this is probably going to be the case, and it may be the place uh, the, the the case for Boone. I'm I'm starting to think if this may be the case for Ames <laughs> or or in Cornerstone where I'm at now too. Is that like, uh, do we have to be stuck in a perpetual ignorance to awareness cycle? <laughs> you know, uh, is that what it has to be? Maybe, you know, um, for the school district, probably not because the world is willing to do more, right? It's the churches that we really have the, 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 the problem. Yeah. 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 That's good. good that's good um so like that's that's um believe it or not even though it feels like the world's been shaken <laughs> you know there's so many people who can look at the george floyd thing look at the ahmaud arbery or brianna taylor and even the ones who who, who came after that and leave unscathed <laughs> you know can't b- believe it or not how as unreal as that may be and so the fact that your heart has become softened. Um, a, you know, a type of scale has fallen from your eyes. You know, a a a light has come on. Uh, don't feel shame in that. <laughs> you know, don't feel guilt that you hadn't known or that you hadn't ventured there. Uh, walk in freedom, grace, and mercy that it's even happened. Uh, because it's it's not promised. You know, there will be people that witness 2020 right now as good and well adults and walk through 2020, walk to their grave, still stuck. You know, it's only by grace that we get to awaken <laughs> in, this, in, this, in this journey called life, right? And, and, and grow more Christ-like and grow more in love for one another. And so, man, just walk boldly. <laughs> Walk in unity, walk in humility as you as you continue your steps. Yeah. And so I think, man, if uh, a lot of people always ask me, you know, what, uh, what can I do? <laughs> you know, what, what can I do? And I think the, the first thing is always education, right? Uh, listen to black voices, listen to minority voices, um, do some introspection. Right, find out where it is, even if it's not personally or individually, things that you've done blatantly or explicitly, you know, but maybe it's that that, that you've heard along your uh, adolescence or your childhood or, um, you know, family members you're thinking of right now or, you know, things you've seen in your proximity. Uh, think about those things, right? Don't, don't excuse those things, but don't condemn those things, but go into them and be like, man, what has what that done to me? What is it doing to these people that, that, uh, that it's affecting? You know, uh, go there. Let the, let the gospel wash over that. Um, 
And I think that's a place where we don't like to go <laughs> because it's so uncomfortable uh, and, it's, and it's painful, you know. But it's a place I think that we have to go before we actually ask the question, man, what can I do? Because it's not so much what can I do, it's, it's, it's more or less, um, uh, you know, what am I willing to do? Because any, actually any, Jess, you, you joining the equity team, like, like that, that's something that you can do. We all don't have to be equity officers, <laughs> you know, but that's something that just feels uh, transformed and, and, and compassionate about, right, as she should, as she's equipped to, as she desires that, right? And so I think, like, I'm not expecting her to get up here at Stonebridge on Sunday and, and, and preach the congregation on racial reconciliation, you know. Uh, I might, <laughs> you know, but, but she won't, you know. And so it's, um, that's, the, that's the thing. You know, it's not so much what can I do. It's, it's man, what am, I, what am I willing to do? What am I called to do? And so it, it may just be conversations around your immediate circle. It, it, it may end at the conversations and education with your kids. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Okay? And so I think, uh, I think people should recognize that. Like, we're, no one needs to do some grand thing. You know, there's, there's people in places to do the grand things and maybe uh, convincing those people <laughs> to do more is, is what needs to happen, right? Uh, but the, the onus isn't on us in particular, but we do need to do the, the hard work of internalizing and doing the uh, undressing, the, um, this type of, you know, uh, washing over, if you will, mulling over, if you will. Uh, you know, of, man, what does this mean to me? What have I experienced? Uh, what do I continue to experience in my immediate circles? Uh, and, man, where, where can I step in? So, with what I know now. I think that's really good. Um, that's literally the same argument I always use. It's like, man, when in, in places where the de- where the demographic is so low, where the representation is so low, like instead of having a mindset I shouldn't care about this, it's like, actually, especially if you're looking for something to do. Like if if, if you're the type of person I say, hey, uh, before you do anything, and you're just thinking like I'm gonna do something, <laughs> you know, like yo, this. You, you've, you've, you've got to care, and, and, and you can actually care in a more robust way with smaller numbers, you know. Imagine being in a, in a Chicago, and, 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 and you're like, or a Milwaukee, or a Kansas City even, or Minneapolis. <clears throat> uh, you can get lost in that fray and be like, man, there's, there's so much to do. You know what? I'll never be able to make a dent 
you know, nothing to ever change here. But if you're in Boone, Iowa, and you're like, yo, there's a four and a half percent, you know, minority culture, um, I could steward my privilege extremely well here, you know? And so, like, man, flip that <laughs> and, 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 and put, the, put the emphasis on why I care and flip that to, man, I have to care, you know? So, that's good. Yeah. I think one, one thing, um, <clears throat> so I am a, uh, a firm proponent of the multi-ethnic church. Um, and so, by definition, uh, I guess evangelicals come up with this definition of multi-ethnic church, and they define what it means. And they say that multi-ethnic church means a church that is less than, uh, is 80% or less made up of one demographic. Okay, so like, it'd be an 80-20 rule, is, is, is what we call it. So majority culture, whatever it is, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, makes up 80% or less of that population. And then the 20% makes up whatever other uh, ethnicity or, or demographic is in that church. Um, I'm not so much concerned about the numbers when I speak about multi-ethnic church. Um, so when I do speak about multi-ethnic church, people like to get up in arms and be like, well, there's no way we could have that much representation in here, you know. In a place like Ames, there's no way Cornerstone could represent a multi-ethnic church, right? And so I'm, my, my pushback is, okay, yeah, I hear you. I get that, right? But it's not so much about making your church represent a certain demographic. Um, but, man, there's, there's something to believing in the scriptures and preaching in a way and teaching in a way uh, and stewarding and shepherding your congregation in a way, uh, biblically, around the concepts of race, around the concepts of reconciliation, that even in a place like Ames, that's, what, 2% black? Uh, when minorities, particularly black people, come to the doors of Cornerstone, uh, they're not turned away or repulsed, <laughs> you know, because uh, they don't, feel seen, they don't feel heard or cared for, right? Uh, there's, there's no, um, we talk about this amongst ourselves, amongst the staff, right? Like uh, your, what you, what you don't say explicitly, you say implicitly, right? And so we're saying a lot of things implicitly about who we are at Cornerstone. You know, uh, our location says a lot. The building, like, you know, it's on the corner of 30 and 35 in that, in that little area. Um, you're not saying that you don't want low-income people to come to your church, but it's difficult if you're low-income. You don't have a ride. You don't have this, that, and the other to get out there, gas money. Um, you're not saying that you don't want people of color or different cultures at your church, but you're heavily expressing yourself in one culture, right? Uh, and so, like, there's so many things that uh, we could work on, even in a primarily white society, a primarily white culture city, where uh, 
we don't say, okay, just because there's low minority count means that we can feel the freedom to just, you know, give in fully, wholeheartedly to one culture, not even care, you know. Uh, man, that's, that, that's, that's an expression of love. That's an expression of humility, you know, uh, to be more inviting. Uh, the Summit Church out in North Carolina, J.D. Griff, you know that name, like, man, I know minority leaders who have been at his church, who have left his church. They're in Raleigh-Durham. The demographics is 40% white, 30% black, and he's got a majority white church. And it took him until 2017, 2018 to realize, hey, this probably isn't, <laughs> this probably, we probably haven't been, you know, teaching a robust gospel if, if we're only representing, you know, half of the demographic that's here in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. And so, like, they're having to do damage control within their own context, and it's, and it's much more so than I, could, than I would need to do or ever could do in Ames, um, just because of low demographics, you know. Uh, but he's bit that bullet. Uh, he's making that change. He's making those efforts, you know. And I, and I think that's really beautiful. Um, as painful as it may be for me to see as a ministry leader in this, in, this, in this context, minority ministry leader in this context, to desire to see that, to see this um, scales falling of eyes and, and white leadership in churches, uh, to say, man, there's been things that we have done, ignorantly maybe, uh, complicitly maybe, uh, but we want to we make it right. We want to do something different. You know, it, it takes a lot of humility to own up to that and say that. Uh, and I've seen it in different contexts. I've seen it at Cornerstone. I've seen it within uh, J.D. Greer, president of the SBC, you know. Uh, phenomenal work being done. So that's where my hope is. I'm not, I, you know, I spoke on some of this hope at, on, 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 on Sunday. The hope, the hope is there, man. I, I think it's going to be impossible for the American church to, uh, go forward, you know. People like to think the church is going to fix the racial problems in America. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think the church fixes the racial problems in America, but I do think uh, God is getting the church's attention <laughs> with the racial problems in America. You know, and so I, I, I think not only in terms of evangelism, but in the terms of representing Jesus rightly, you know, with, with how we, with the culture and how it's going. And this conversation that you guys are all having right here in Boone, Iowa, you know, uh, how many more is this conversation happening in other places, you know, because it's, it's going to be known in, in the next generation, uh, like, we can't preach the same Jesus we've preached centuries past, uh, it's not true, first of all, <laughs> and it's not sufficient, second of all, right? Uh, this kind of lifeboat theology, it's being called this lifeboat theology of saying, hey, um, you know, say this prayer, walk down the aisle, you know, give your life to Christ, and that's it, and that's all, right? We don't talk about the reconciliatory work of Jesus Christ. We don't talk about the justice uh, that's embodied in Jesus Christ, that's embodied in God, him and of himself. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. He is righteous and justice in, this, in and of, or justice in and of himself. Um, 
And I think we do ourselves a disservice with that because it, it allows us to say things like, um, there's only four and a half percent. <laughs> you know, we've got to get to the point where that can't even leave our mouths in the church. And so um, I think with the gospel that we preach and the theology that we subscribe to, uh, it, it helps that kind of mentality breed itself in these environments, you know. And so we've got to think broader than that. We've got to think bigger than that. We've got to, the cross, it's, it's big enough for that. Like, it's, 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 it's huge, man. And so we've got to look at the, at the breadth and the depth of the cross if we're going to um, see real Christianity preached, a real Jesus made mobile in America. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to, uh, to Matt after Thursdays, um, after I came in and did the thing Thursday, and, and I was telling him, man, like, preaching reconciliation in and of itself. Uh, Cottage Grove down in Des Moines, it's a, it's a Salt Network church, phenomenal church. Andy and Recap are doing amazing, amazing kingdom work down there. Um, and one of their core values is reconciliation, you know, in their mission statement, they have diversity in their in their in their in their mission statement. Uh, I think both reconciliation and diversity are not uh, they're not worldly terms. They're they're gospel terms, <laughs> right? They're literally gospel terms. Um, you know, in the the great commandment, you know, go and make disciples, or, or the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the ethnos lends to a to a a language of diversity, you know, baptizing men and fathers and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul, the Jew Gentile barrier, the Jew Gentile, you know, uh, divide that he preached against, you know, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, all those epistles are literally talking about a group of people who don't get along, <laughs> and he's saying, "Yo, get along," <laughs> you know. Uh, not for the sake of, not for, not diversity for diversity's sake, not for reconciliation for reconciliation's sake, but yo, because this is the work of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to one another, you know? And so I'm preaching y'all to sleep, but I appreciate y'all coming. So, all right. We can talk about this, Josh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Center. Yeah, they would, they would give, uh, 
Yeah. Um, I would say, so Matthew 25 House, host incarceration ministry, uh, to nonprofit, I would say that is a great place to give. Uh, the Butterfly House, also post incarceration ministry for women. Matthew 25 House is for men. Uh, Wings of Refuge, it's, uh, um, it's for sex trafficking survivors. Okay, and I would say all three of those, uh, man, take your pick. They, they could benefit greatly from the donation. Um, you guys, I think your location is actually really good. I don't know where like the low income housing is around here, or, like where a majority of minorities kind of stay in this and in, in, in boom. But if you're right downtown, I don't know if there's any buses that come through here, any kind of public trans, trans like it, it, it probably comes right by the, like this is, uh, what building is this right here, the courthouse? I mean, there's probably direct, you know, transportation that comes right here for people who don't have access to, to, to cars and whatnot. <clears throat> and so, like, your, your location is actually prime for something like this. Uh, I think now what it comes to is, um, for you guys as leaders, you know, are you, are you diversifying the things that you're bringing uh, to youth group, right? Um, Josh, if you're the one teaching that youth group, you know, are you uh, using illustrations from theologians of color? Are you using quotes from, uh, you know, MLK and, 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 you know, different people as opposed to, to uh, you know, are you quoting movies with black leads, you know, if you're trying to, you know, rouse up the crowd a little bit. And so, like, just being, being hit to those kind of things. If you're bringing in a guest speaker, you know, uh, find someone of a different, ethnicity that can come and, and just have that visual representation, I think, for the, um, for the kids is good. Um, uh, yeah, ask them, like, be, be blunt. Ask the kids, I'm going to ask you right now, yo. <laughs> uh, spend more, uh, invite your friends over to your house, have dinner, go to their homes, right? Um, do that sort of thing. The more you're actually doing life outside of church together, uh, the more they'll be willing to come to church with you, right? Um, and so if you find yourself, you know, you say uh, the, the black friends you have at school that you're hanging out with, uh, you have them outside of church, and they're saying, yo, when you go to the church, I actually check myself at the door, and I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not coming. Um, that's, probably a, um, that's probably a telltale sign of a lack of, relationship, right? 
And so, man, invest, invest more. Um, be more available. Um, don't be afraid to ask. Yo, come. No, no, no. Like, for real. Come. Come to church with me, you know. Whatever nights is it, Wednesday nights, you know. Man, come. Come with me to church. It'll be a great time, you know. Um, yeah. Don't let them say no. Don't let them take no for an answer. And then all of you, all of you do it. Next thing you know, like, they're, they're going to have people here where they see, oh, you know, there, there is representation here. You know, they'll hear the things you're saying from the stage. Josh, you have a phenomenal voice. Uh, like, worship music is crucial. It's key. Um, the cadence to the song, <laughs> right? Uh, you guys, you guys know hip-hop, rap, right? You guys know Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it just sounds different. You know, I was listening to some of the house music you guys were playing uh, uh, before, you know, and it's, that's speaking something, right? <laughs> and so just, just like keeping, keeping tabs on that kind of stuff, right? Like what, what, what would it be to have Andy Minio and Lecrae and, you know, those guys kind of playing over the speakers? Or Kanye, yeah, 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 Kanye, put Kanye on, yeah. So it's, it's, it's just different things like that, you know, if um, having events outside of the church uh, that are in areas and neighborhoods that are close to by where, you know, some of the minority population could actually, even if they're not technically invited, uh, they'll be around, they'll see, you know, uh, evangelism opportunities, maybe they'll come over and check it out, ask a question, uh, phenomenal time to be like, yo, yeah, we're part of Stonebridge Turf right downtown, you know, come check us out if you ever get a chance. You know, just beginning to build those relationships. So. Yeah, I think that was just good. Like that. So like, just the stuff that was different and that, like that can literally apply to anybody. So it would be insensitive to them like targeting. <laughs> yeah. You know, because like we, we just got a bunch of evangelism tools and discipleship stuff so we have been, been given practical tools to mm. Well, think about it this way. <laughs> you targeted to get this, <laughs> you know? It just didn't feel like targeting because it felt comfortable. It's, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're just doing what you know how to do. You're, you're operating in the societies that you know how to operate in, uh, speaking the language you know how to speak, so to speak, you know? And so, like, doing that same thing cross-culturally, absolutely, <laughs> you know, why, why not, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it, you can call it targeting, you can call it strategy, you can call it whatever the heck you want to call it. It's, I don't call it none of that. I call it ministry. <laughs> you, know? you know, you can, you, you can do it in, in, your, uh, in your comfortable context, and then you can do it in your uncomfortable context or whatever. But you, but, but you call it something different because it's more difficult, right? And it's not comfortable. So, um, yeah, do it.